I'm the doctor, by the way. You're listening to Pieces of Eighth, the Doctor Who podcast that's always got its feet on the ground. So you would say we're down to Aerith, Becca? <laughs> <laughs> we are carrying on in our trip through those sections of the Doctor Who universe that feature the incarnation of the Time Lord, as played by Paul McGann. I'm Kenny Smith. And I'm Rebecca Chapman. You join us as we resume our quest to feature the Eighth Doctor's exploits, whether on screen, in books, novellas, forecast audio, short stories, comics, animations, talking books, or anything else we can lay our eyes, ears, and hands upon. What about our noses? Uh, I mean, if is there anything like like a scratch and sniff of Paul McGann? That sounds horrific. Um, well, <laughs> I know that um, Tina Peters, our friend over in Belgium, she would absolutely love that one, probably. I'm only joking, Tina. Or am I? Who knows? Uh, anyway, hello, Tina. I hope you're all ready for Christmas. And, uh, and of course, all the other lovely devoted listeners. But yes, uh, all is good. And uh, how's your Christmas prep going, Becca? Oh, blimey. Uh, so everything has been bought. We did our food shop uh, Saturday night. Excellent. Uh, oof. And then, uh, ev- yeah, everything's been bought. I just need to wrap everything. But once I've wrapped everything, there's nowhere to store it. So I'm just going to do it like Friday night and put it <laughs> around the tree. <laughs> yeah. And of course, uh, the little person getting sort of slightly excited by all these different lights and things around the flat. Yeah, I mean, uh, every morning we've got a Christmas countdown that's got his name on it. And it's like mm-hmm. a piece of wood with the numbers 1 through 25. And then you just move like this giant Santa across the top of it. Excellent. Um, it's it's very cute, and so every morning he gets very excited that we go and move the Santa, and then he has an advent calendar, but it's got books in it instead of chocolate. So every morning he gets up and he's immediately grabbing his advent calendar and waiting for Father Christmas to be moved, and it's very cute. So yeah, I just dread what's going to happen on Boxing Day when he realizes there's no more. Oh no! Don't do that to me. <laughs> All right. Okay. Right. Shall we move on then? <laughs> please, please, okay. please. Are right. you ready for Christmas? I am, thank you. Yes, everything's sorted. Pretty much the last present picked up. I was actually, as I was saying before we started, I dropped off Katie at work in Glasgow this morning. And on the way back, I picked up some of these because I noticed somebody quite likes these baklava. It was mentioned at the weekend, so there's some nice chocolate baklava in there, which I picked up from Lidl's. And uh, they had it on it, a rather good deal. So yes, took me a while to I find need to it. To, I need to go and get something because mm. I love baklava. Yeah, it's very good. The chocolate baklava there is just mwah, heaven. <laughs> So yes, definitely recommended listeners if you want to give yourself a little Christmas treat, apart from listening to this podcast, or even The Power of Three if you want to hear about Doctor Who books and stuff. But yeah. <laughs> anyway, let's chat about Doctor Who again, since that's the reason why everyone's tuning in. And today, we're back in the land of the audio short trips from Big Finish. And this one we're talking about today is a subscriber-only special, as The Caves of Erith. See what we did there from the top of the show? The Caves of Erith was written by Alice Cavender and is the 25th subscriber short trip audio story. It was read by the late, great Stephen Critchlow and was released as a subscriber exclusive download available with monthly range subscriptions that included You Are the Doctor and other stories. So Becca, would you kind of tell us what TARDIS fandom has to say about the Caves of Erith, please? (laughs) I am finally losing my cold, so hopefully this will go slightly better today. Hang on a second. Reading voice activated. 
It's Christmas, so the Doctor and Lucy spend Christmas in a B&B at a picturesque village, and they find that the village has had a large decrease in childbirth, and then they talk to the landlady's son, Oscar, about an almost extinct variety of bats. The Doctor and Lucy wake up next morning to see that Oscar has run off and find him in a cave. There he is trying to save a species of bat people, and they want to reclaim Earth by sterilisation. Now, there's no official trailer for the story as it's not been released on its own, but here's the intro to it with the first minute or so. This is the place, said Lucy, staring up at a hanging sign creaking in the late December wind. The Compton Muggery B&B sported peeling pink paint and a heavy wooden front door with a holly wreath nailed firmly to it. Not quite like its photo, she muttered, wielding the iron door knocker. <laughs> but when are they? She glanced over her shoulder at the doctor who was carrying her two shopping bags. No dogs, no time lords, it says. What? queried the doctor, peering at the card in the window, slightly obscured by spray on snow. Oh, very funny, he said, as he followed its instruction to take his shoes off in the porch. Seriously, Doctor, don't go on about how good Mrs. Beaton's figgy pudding was, or the time you snogged Elizabeth I under the mistletoe. Let's play normal for a night. I'm in this for the nice comfy bed and the fry-up, while you ponce about with your professor friend in Bristol. The Doctor's good humour was unassailable. The British fashion for implicating mistletoe in illicit embraces did not start until the 19th century, and in fact, Mrs. Beaton was unbeaten until Nigella, he said pointedly. Snogging or baking? inquired Lucy innocently. Becca, thoughts on this one? It's, uh, it's Christmassy without being Christmassy. It is, which is very odd, um, but in a good way. I like it. It's very Doctor Who. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it you does know, the doctor thing. getting all nerdy and excited with Oscar at the beginning. I love that. That's that's great. Yeah, the fact they're getting worked up over varieties of bats and the fact they're a, a rare species. Tim, do you see bats quite often down where you are? So not in Southampton, which is where I now live, but mm -hmm. where I used to live. We used to get them all the time. They used to just soar past the windows casually. Yeah, I made that in the summer actually because I was I was out I mean, out the back and was taking some rubbish out late on and noticed there were just the bats were just flapping around and um told Katie I texted Katie that come down, come down and we watched the bats flapping around in our back garden for ages. It was lovely to see and then they just disappeared because we just we just sat in our garden bench and just watched them flapping about. It was lovely to see. Um but yeah, it was good. I mean I like bats. Bats are good. Um but yeah, I think yes. it's a, a story that builds up slowly, isn't it? Just to the as they venture and make their way to the caves and there's a lot more than meets the eye going on. Yeah, you're just like, oh, cool, bats. And then you're like, ah, bat people. Oh, uh, whoop, okay. <laughs> yeah, but not just any ordinary bat people, bat people from the early days of Earth. Yes, which reminds me of the, um, <laughs> reminds me of like the, the Silurians and Madame Vastra. Yes, yeah, very much so the fact they're sort of an original inhabitant of the Earth and things like that. What did you think of the, Fact, there's the two clans there. Obviously, there's Johan being untrustworthy and his plot to make humanity sterile. I mean, it's uh, I I do like the fact there are two clans, but I I completely understand why 
Johan decided that making humanity sterile was the way to conquer Earth. You know, you wipe out humanity, you, you've, you've done it easily. Yeah, starting with one village, that's the very Doctor Who thing I think you mentioned at the top. Um, so you start with one village and then test it on there and then you take it across the world. Yes, it's like um, all of these like zombie apocalypse movies. It's like, oh my god, America's done for. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's like, I mean, yes, America is done for. But what is England doing? Are we just sat there drinking tea? Like, oh, look at the Americans. Yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, and Scotland as well. But yes, of course. Drinking your iron brew and eating your haggis. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag cliche, but true. Um, yes. Uh, iron brew jelly babies. Oh, how good are they? Anyway. Iron brew, they were so good. Yeah, haven't had any in a while. Need to, need to pick some up, send some down. Um, but yeah, I'm, I liked uh, also the fact we get to meet Tamu who, of course, we discuss, and it's very cleverly done, and then it mentions that um, she has a, a bump in her belly, which I'm sure is something that you can relate to from earlier this year. Oh, don't even. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think Being that's... pregnant is not something I wish to relive ever again. <laughs> no. And uh, yes, I think uh, the little one was quite happy to be an only child, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I used to say I'd be a great only child never told my sister that um anyway um yeah i do like the fact that it's very subtly done the fact that we've got a, a pregnancy at christmas time and then of course yes. we've got uh, the resolution where oscar accidentally virtually wipes out his bat allies which sounds like something from batman the bat allies <laughs> the new name of the uh the robins the bat allies <laughs> <laughs> but yeah a nice wee touch there and then of course right at the end the Doctor and Lucy depart and um, they hear the, the screech as a baby is born just as Christmas Day arrives and a bat baby yes, arrives. I, I do like the way that they went as the uh, the confused cries of a newborn baby echo. I liked the fact that they carried on with the echo because obviously they are bat people, but I, I thought that was a nice touch. I agree. I mean, all in all, I think it's a lovely story. It's it's beautifully done it's it's christmasy without being in your face christmasy and yes yeah and it's and it does tie into what you know what started christmas in the first place with the birth of a child so yeah i think that's quite a quite a subtle and a nice way of doing it so well done to alice cavender anyway i think it's time we should find out a little bit more about how this story came about Yes. Now, I believe you spoke to Ian Atkins, the producer of the short trips, Rarities Range, who commissioned this script. He most certainly did. I have indeed. And here he is. Hello, I'm Ian Atkins. Uh, I was the Big Finish producer on the subscriber short trip range, and I saw the Caves of Erith into production. And I have to say, even now, I'm still not sure I'm saying that right. So I noticed on the front of the script that we've got notes saying that at times it should be pronounced Erith and then Erith. So um, please, if you come from anywhere near there, forgive me. <laughs> oh dear. I suppose it is uh, another welcome return to the range for Alice Cavender. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, we went pretty much in from, she'd written a story before that called The Young Lions. And um, I think I, I, I was looking through my older emails and the, the email where I said to her how about that Young Lions had gone live on the site was basically, have you got any more ideas? So um, we went pretty much straight into it. 
And I think, again, I mean, with most of these, I, I try not to have a, too much of a shopping list. With her, I'd, I'd got some Christmas slots available and I was very keen to kind of have a regular Christmas story, which does make, I mean, given that by that point, Doctor Who had had 10 Christmas specials, you know, if, you, if you're trying to get someone to write a Doctor Who Christmas story before 2005, they've got the world to pick from. Then you've got 10 years of Doctor Who having mined it. So it's quite hard, actually, now. If you say to a, a Doctor Who writer, can I have a new Christmas story, please? But um, I think that was about the only thing I asked for with, with Alice was Christmas story and, yes, please, can we have a Doctor and, and Lucy again? You know, why, do, why wouldn't you ask Alice Gavender to write that? Yeah, I think the fact you've got the Christmas setting is is just wonderful and it's, it lends itself so well to sound design, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I mean I, there was a cynical, there was always a cynical reason for me doing it is that I wanted stories that people were kind of prompted each year to dust off and listen to again. And Christmas stories work perfectly for that. And it's, it's a real... Yeah, a cynical way of making sure that people keep listening to my production. So, but I mean, I also adore Christmas. So, frankly, that kind of that nostalgia and that happy remembrance sort of feeling you get, you know, I, I'm full of that already. So, if I can spread it around, all the better. <laughs> I also like the fact that obviously Christmas is all about a celebration of the birth of Christ, uh, the baby Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Yep. Uh, whatever term you may wish to use, people. Uh, but we also have this story here is about a decrease in childbirth. And I think mm. that was quite a quite an interesting sort of juxtaposition. You've got uh, what Christmas is all about, but it's not actually happening there. Yeah, but I, I, so often with Doctor Who, he's, he's taking a familiar thing and then saying, ah, oh, but there's something wrong with this. So, so that's kind of the, I think that's the aspect with this is that um, that effect is going on. But... I think quite early on when Alice and I were sort of talking about ideas, she said about it being about a birth and a you know, baby and you think, oh yes, I haven't done that yet. And that's so Christmas. And it's not an aspect that people necessarily cover too much. And I also like with it how, how, how kind of domestic it was. And that, that always tends to be used as quite a negative phrase, but it's just, you know, it's a small household getting ready for Christmas and it's, you know, a busy household, a stressed household. It's not everyone sitting around having a nice fuzzy glow about Christmas coming. This is a difficult time for the, the protagonist. And I think it's not, that's not necessarily the most obvious kind of way into a Christmas story. And um, it's one of my favorite aspects of that. It, it was, again, rereading it, it was only reading it till then. I'd, I'd wondered how much the, the boy his behaviour, how much of that was autism. I mean, it's never really addressed or covered, but I think the character is written with that in mind. I would, you'd have to ask Alice about whether that, whether I'm just reading into things that's not there, but it was, that in itself just adds another layer to this kind of unusual family Christmas. I mean, there's no father figure either, and it's, rather than kind of wallow in it, I think I love the way it then expands into a story about, you know, discovery and and, and newness and, and and peace on earth, quite you know, quite literally. So, and bat people. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I'd say I don't know where it came from because that was again that was that was the writer coming up with something. It was. I think I had to give a few notes saying, 
because initially there was there was quite a lot with the story and again we, we kind of focused down on you know the bat colony and the boy i think that was what we we, we pared down from the the kind of potentially bigger story but yeah in my mind they would kind of be the bat equivalent of the silurians but i don't want to start getting into lizards and bats and mammals and, and i know it doesn't really work but it there's a kind of precedent with Doctor Who with these hidden colonies feeling attacked as well. So it's kind of, it's channeling a bit of that. It's kind of, although you end up thinking tech traps as well, I think. <laughs> but you also think they've not, they've not done bats that many times in Doctor Who. So it, it felt unusual. And I, I love the kind of matriarch figure in that, the, the one who's come from the, the Welsh colony that's been wiped out. And it's, it's amazing how just introducing that one character with quite a short backstory adds such a dimension to that story. It's it gives it such a depth, and, and it really gives some stuff for the Doctor to spark off to show what's at risk. And it's one of those things that if you're doing a bigger story, you, you've got more time to introduce a few more characters to do that. It's a real skill to introduce so many facets and dimensions in a short story with just one character it's um it's one of my favorite things about that that alice did so you mentioned when you were talking about young lines you didn't have too many notes was it the same again with this one i, I, I did actually look at this yeah it starts off with a bigger storyline that i think i was becoming aware, aware of, i was becoming more aware of what a short trip should be um so we, we kind of boiled it down to a couple of facets but there was there was a whole thing about a crash ship that we lost partly because i quite like the fact that the colony was kind of earth-based all along as i say it's kind of the silurian idea and also because i've been doing short trips for a couple of years at this point and oh my god i mean the amount of stories or the pitches i was getting was this happens, it turns out it's a crash ship, or there's a crash ship. Every story is a crash ship, and it's it's a really great way of starting a Doctor Who story, but once you're in an environment where you're seeing it a lot, you really start trying to kick against it. So with, with this one, you didn't need a crash ship, so we're like, no, let's just get rid of that. But, I mean, I, I think it, that was about the time I wrote the blame game for the short trips range, because it that is entirely explaining why there are so many crash ships on earth because it was driving me insane it was if it, it was crash ships and zombies almost every pitch was crash ships and zombies sometimes at the same time so yeah it was um it was the only aspect from it from it that we had to kind of reduce um you know it's quite often with the short trips you wish you could claim credit for all of the good stuff and then no i think it came pretty much fully formed and then Alice ran with it, so yeah, it's um, and it, it does feel very Christmassy in the end, and, and yet I think it's kind of at 90 degrees to most of the Christmas stories that we did in the short trips range, and indeed, I think most Doctor Who Christmas stories. I've also just found out why my Paul Sprague submission, Zombies in a Crashing Spaceship, never made it anywhere, so <laughs> now we know. Uh, I mean, I, I, I completely get why it happens because it especially with shorter stories, you need kind of a sort of shortcut. You need a um, shorthand on a lot of the aspects to get them running. And indeed, if you look at Doctor Who, the series, there is so much of it. And it, it just becomes a trope that I say, 
because I was doing the short trips and I was I was reading the Paul Sprague submissions, you know, I was looking at hundreds of storylines a year. So when there is one that's very much in common, you really, really, really start to notice it. So, yeah, that's uh, so. Yeah, the kind of we didn't need it in case of Earth, and it really opened my eyes and enabled me to kind of make later stories feel a bit fresher by removing that. So uh, I, need, I need to thank Alice for that as well. <laughs> Ian, thanks once again. Pleasure. Thank you very much to Ian for that. So let's hear about the writing process and how this one came to be. And here we go. Let's have another chat with the fab Alice Cavender, who's an NHS colleague of mine, but from down south, obviously I'm up in Scotland, she's in NHS England. So over to you, Alice. So hi, I'm Alice Cavender. I'm the writer of the short trip, The Caves of Erith. Welcome back, Alice. Always a joy to see you. So, what do you recall about your brief for this one getting the commission? I remember um, Ian said it was going to be a Christmas um, subscriber short trip, um, and he was looking at ideas for that. Uh, and he didn't want it to be too dark as it was the festive season. I had um, coincidentally been spending some time in Somerset, um, and I've been in in the wonderful Cheddar Gorge cave system. I mean, it's amazing. There are these huge caverns alongside all these little potholing networks. So it has both this sort of majestic and claustrophobic aspects um, to it, which I mean, actually, quite a few of us have never never seen that sort of environment. So I had this sort of primal, ancient experience um, fresh in my mind. So that suggested me a location with a, a level of creepiness that might be appropriate for a Christmas story. There's actually this chap in, in Somerset called Adrian, and his DNA is linked to the uh, person called Cheddar Man. He's a 10,000-year-old skeleton that was found in the caves there. And it, it really got me thinking, well, who else could inhabit that cave system and why are they there? So that was where my head was at when Ian... Um, and made a, a very kind suggestion to me of, of pitching a story. Fantastic. I do have to say, Cheddar Man does sound like the world's cheesiest superhero, but there we go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> yeah. So how did you enjoy doing a festive story, given that Doctor Who Christmas episodes have pretty much been a big thing since 2005? They have. Um, so I, I was excited by the challenge. Um, I mean, it, it's often easier to write something when there are some themes or conventions to act as a bit of scaffolding that put a bit of l limit on what you can do. For example, Ian saying, "Don't go really dark and have your cavemen gnawing on the bones of humans." We don't. We don't want to go there for this episode. But uh, there are themes in the Christmas stories, such as you know, you'll, you'll often have a character, quite often a young person in a difficult place with a struggling family loneliness um, and of course a spooky Christmas story you want a bit of otherworldly element and um, preferably lots of snow so I managed to cram all those aspects into this one I had various ideas about linking the bat people to off-world civilizations and tech um, however Ian felt it couldn't be too far ranging in such a short story as you tend to get with the short trips. Um, so I focused on the relationships and the experiences that the um, characters such as uh, Lucy and the Doctor and the character Tamu could bring to try to prevent Oscar and Johan sort of bringing special forces down on themselves and their community, which is the, the risk that they were developing there. I think there is such a fashion for Christmas episodes to go off with a big bang. Um, however, the 
Doctor Who canon's also got lots of smaller set pieces um, that almost act as a counterpoint to the whiz-bang episodes. And that's more where this story goes. And when I, when I was young, I was always terrified when the Doctor and Companions went underground. And, you know, and I still am. And it, it's still being done. It was it was in the last TV season as well. So I, I love going in those confined, scary spaces. So I suppose that by this point, you must have found Lucy's voice was in your head and was almost coming, almost like second nature to put it onto the page or the screen. Yeah, I, I mean, she's just so... Lucy's a great companion. She's the, the gateway world for many of us who both who live in a similar world to the one Lucy's lived in, but and also all, all the fans across the world. You know, she's a fantastic British character. She's come from the Christmas world of, you know, eating too much chocolate, singing along with a musical on the telly, you know, and that's just such a, um, a, a contrast to the Doctor's world of the jolly strange indeed. So she's a big favourite with Big Finished listeners in the same way that Rose in the new series is beloved of millennials so I think at this point she's looking forward to some sort of good old fashioned UK B&B hospitality it's hard work being a companion she wants a Christmas dinner put in front of us a log fire and some chat basically and in the world of bed and breakfast accommodation that historically there was a lot of real chatting with strangers you know you'd, you'd go to a and b and you'd make a friend for life and it's actually a really big part of our culture that it's it's um, a lot smaller than it used to be, but it is a wonderful place to meet people. And you'd have, you'd just end up having a really good laugh over, over a beer or a coke, and and so it's something that she you know she's looking forward to. So that's how they end up sort of thinking they're going to go their separate ways. Doctor's going to go off and meet his boffin friends, and she's just going to have a bit of fun, but. What I really like about Lucy is that, you know, she seems to have this short attention span, but in fact, her curiosity tends to get the better of her and she ends up getting really emotionally engaged in whatever the matter at hand is. Um, We see how that changes everything for her over time in her journey with the Doctor. Um, I like to test her patience quite a lot, so (laughs) she's out looking to have some fun and it usually ends up in quite a lot of discomfort somewhere in the cold or in the dark. She, you know, it gives her a chance to really properly unleash her sarcasm that we enjoy so much. Most definitely do. I love it. I think <laughs> it's, it's just wonderful. And you can hear Sheridan sing every single line. Uh, just, <laughs> just love it. So what do you call about how things developed during the writing process with this one? Were there many changes or things you tweaked along the way? Or was it pretty much sticking to your original outline? Well, I already had this strong idea that I wanted there to be this ancient, really developed culture of cave dwellers across the southwest of England and into Wales. They've all got their own clans and different levels of interaction with the human world. I had these sort of gangs of bat youth in my head, you know, going out by moonlight to scavenge and cause mischief and to return to, you know, ticking off from their elders, you know, worried about they'll go missing in the modern, modern world somewhere, that they'll come to no good. I wanted that conflict in their population with their relationship with the human world. Uh, There was basically a much longer story there than I could tell in 5,000 words. And it it had to be hinted at by some of the tensions between the Erythians. We don't see what happens next for them, although we know they're surviving because, um, spoiler, Tamu has her baby at the very end, which is, is lovely. There's a little bit of Christmas hope there. With the Christmas theme, I wanted it to involve a young person and visit family, you know, the families, the Erythian family and the 
uh, Oscar's family. Uh, it's a tricky time when we discover that Oscar basically shouldn't really be on Santa's list. <laughs> He's got himself in a bit of hot water. He struggles to understand that there are consequences to our actions, struggles with communication. I wanted to bring the Christmas theme back to can there be compassion for him because he's he's to a certain extent an excluded person. Um, he has this incredible strength in his uh, interest and knowledge about nature, but he's increasingly getting himself in a dangerous place. Uh, he's chosen a questionable mentor in the character of Johan and he hasn't stopped to consider if the end justifies the means. Uh, we don't know whether he's going to sort of turn into a Davros or, or a Chris Packham. <laughs> and we've got the Doctor knowing that he's had these similar dilemmas in the past around science and he's really alive to that responsibility of, of developing ethics. So it's alongside the story of the Erythians and their status or lack of it in the world, their deep resentment. But you've got to, um, you've got to fit all of that into... Um, 5,000 words so some of it has to be hinted at but I wanted I wanted the humans and the Erythians to feel real and that they have their they both have their own cultures so that's it became more focused down on on one one as a one act sort of more of a one act play rather than trying to run all over the southeast southwest sorry or um run you know run into space you know, which I would have, I did think about, but we, but we had to keep it tight. <laughs> How did you find creating the Erythians? I have to say that, in my mind's eye, they're somewhere between the tet traps and bat think. <laughs> yes, I, I wanted them to have a sort of really hairy, you know, hairy sort of pug-nosed little bat features. Um, um, while at the same time they're sort of fully sized and a bit menacing at the same time. Um, I don't really know how well they fly <laughs> because they're probably not super aerodynamic. But they, they you know, they, they, they're sort of wiry and strong. Um, you don't necessarily have to be very big to be quite dangerous. <laughs> um, so I, I, I suppose I, I wanted them to be scary, but I wanted to know could there be goodwill, you know, does the, does the phrase goodwill to all men include include scary bat people or not you know that was my question really how, how evil was i going to make them i wanted the their society to be so ancient and complex their own sense of the seasons and their relationship to the land and their sense of ownership of the land you know they, they feel their sense of purpose on the land they've been they feel um supplanted by by homo sapiens taking over the whole whole world basically they're at risk of extinction and I wanted them to grapple a bit with ethical dilemmas around that as well rather than just have them just all teeth and fangs basically yeah so how did you feel about it when you heard the story come through with the recording of a fantastic reading from the late great Stephen Critchlow oh yeah it's just such such a nice gentleman um because I'd I had met him. I, I wasn't at this recording, but I, I'd met him, and, and I had so I had an idea of how it would sound. But you, you always feel nervous and excited on on first listen, and I was really pleased with it. And um, hearing it again, I probably haven't listened to it, to it for for about eight years. I'd forgotten some of the plot and all of the dialogue, so it, it was like hearing someone else's story, which was which was really fun. I specifically wanted all those Christmassy sound effects, the snowy weather, the bells, uh, um, and we get some really good squeaky, crunchy snow in the recording, which I really loved. 
And actually in the south of England, um, southeast here, we haven't had proper snow like that since before I wrote this. So it really took me back to a younger version of myself and my friends. I really wanted that um, creepy echo of being inside the caves and that slight feeling of panic where you don't know where the exit is. If anyone's ever been to Kent's cavern in Devon, when the lights out are in the in in the cavern, there is no darkness like it anywhere on Earth. It is it's terrifying. The combina- I wanted that combination of the effects of water dripping and some echoes in the cave. Uh, that was all there. That was brilliant. The ambient style music I absolutely loved. And I love that we can hear the bats. I think we've borrowed the doctor's ears because they are in his hearing range. They're definitely not in ours, but, but he can hear that and, and then has to pretend that he can't hear it. <laughs> so um, there's, a, there's also um, a section, that, that section in the caves, it feels quite old school Doctor Who for me, um, being captured and frog marched in the dark to meet a mad alien scientist, potentially alien scientist with an evil plan. It's a, this is a, that's the beauty of writing for the Doctor Who world. You know, it can be epic and it can be it can be at small scale at the same time. So that's it's more of a local drama. But either way, you've got you've definitely got lives at stake, um, and hopefully, it's about people and creatures that we care about. So this came out in the sixteenth of December, twenty fifteen. So how do you look back on it now, though, and the whole experience? It's yeah, it, it's it's. It's like dropping in on myself. It was a good good time for me. It was really constructive working with Ian. I've been fortunate to do other formats with Big Finish. However, the the short trips have a special place in my heart. I was an avid reader as a child. Lots lots of well, Gen X children. <laughs> we we did a lot of reading. We weren't always allowed to watch television all the time. And it's uh, you'll hear lots of people <laughs> my age complain that that there's there was an episode of Doctor Who that they didn't see for like 15 years because they were late home in traffic or something, and and there was there were no repeats, and it was a special kind of trauma for our generation <laughs> to have missed an episode of Doctor Who. I'm not sure some parents were ever forgiven for that. So um, short trips, it, it feels to me more like that reading experience that brings me a really intense comfort that's very special. I think some of the early TV also has that as well. It, it's just so connected to your childhood. So yeah, short trips, uh, they're, a, they're a very fond memory for me. I have to say, I feel your trauma. I missed the first <laughs> 15 minutes of Frontios episode four because it, I was singing with the school choir and oh, I didn't get home. And I wanted to stay and watch Doctor Who and my mum and dad insisted I went to sing with this damn choir. We didn't even win. So, <laughs> waste of time. No. And where did that formative experience take you? <laughs> Back oh, to Doctor Who. <laughs> I feel we were hate and rage for music. <laughs> or certain types of for choir music. Uh, anyway, <laughs> happy times and places. It's, it's, it's nearly Christmas, so yes, let's let's enjoy the Christmas factor. Quite me. So there we go. But no, Alice, thank you so much, and a very Merry Christmas to you and yours. And to you and to all of your fabulous listeners. Um, it's been really lovely to time travel with you again, Kenny. Thank you. A huge thanks to Alice and for Ian for telling us about their work on this one. Yeah, definitely a good, good wee short trip. Um, it's just a shame it's subscriber only because it's a, it's a great one because Big Finish did so many wonderful subscriber only ones that aren't actually fully available at the moment. And we've got another one to cover before this little mini run ends. But yeah, it's a good one. And uh, hopefully 
at some point they'll start making these available again for listeners that would be nice definitely would well until tomorrow when we'll be turning back the clock by a decade and looking at how the eighth doctor played a part in the 50th anniversary celebrations and it's not the one you're expecting i've been rebecca chapman and i've been kenny smith and we will see you or hear you or you'll hear us next time (laughs) indeed you will bye